Hi, I'm Druthi Shah and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? I'm a writer, journalist and poet and I love to find out about what passions people chase after in life, especially if they're then blending together skills in unusual ways. In each edition, I'm going to chat with someone I find particularly interesting and someone who's managed to fit things together in their life or profession that you just might not think of as an obvious match. You're about to hear me chatting with Professor Nate Holder, a musician, a saxophonist and a children's author. Professor Nate Holder, I came across you on Twitter. You were doing some amazing things around decolonizing curriculums and you've got these brilliant children's books. First off, how did you get into music? Like a lot of kids, got into music through our parents in different ways, right? So it was hearing music around. I grew up in church, so you know, that experience of listening to music and being involved in music, you know, singing along, you know, actions to some songs and that kind of thing. Music was just part of what we did all the time. But I think a lot of us at you know young ages were into music and we started to like listen to our own music on the radio at that point in time, right? We didn't have Spotify and these things when we were growing up. And so we kind of started to gravitate towards different things and internet started to evolve. Then we could, you know, access stuff from different places around the world. Getting into music itself was really about what I heard at home. It was about the conversations I had with friends and then playing an instrument. And it kind of just evolved from there, starting to listen to different styles and being engrossed into classical music and what that meant. And then hip hop and what that meant. And then jazz and what that meant. And it just spirals from there, really. But it's not just about someone listening to music. You've gone and made it into a pretty big part of your world. You are a professional musician. You do try and encourage others to find fascination in music as well. So how did you take that passion and really immerse yourself in it? I'm not going to lie. <laughs> now, when you're like 14, 15, and everyone's starting to talk about blind universities, these choices are going to actually shape a lot of your life potentially. And so, you know, you've got to think long and hard about the choices you're going to make. At that point in my life, I didn't really have any passions outside of the music. I, I can't even say it was necessarily a passion. It didn't feel like a passion at that point. It was just something that I was doing and seemed to be decent at. I can't say I was exceptional at. It seemed to be decent at. And so it was like, well, this is the only thing that makes sense in my life. So I guess this is the route I'm going down. <laughs> all the way through to like even going to university it was about all right this is something you can do and so I guess if you have to go to university this is the thing you're going to do (laughs) and make the most of it and figure it out from there it's evolved into just an absolute love of not just the music but the stories and the concepts and the context of, of music point now where I'm trying to do many different things in telling stories and personal just learning about different things but realizing that the more you learn the more you realize you don't know and the more people you want to talk to about stuff in one particular style or one particular context but you realize actually because you've in some ways have become a a, a jack of all and that's probably putting it a bit strong as well instead of a master of one it means that you know you have a, a conversation with one person and you realize like oh i thought i knew something but actually i don't And then someone else in jazz or someone else in gospel is like, yeah, I thought I knew some stuff, but actually I don't. Which is great because it means that there's so much more to learn and there's so much more to share. Um, And so up until this point, that's what it's been about, just going deeper into music and figuring out different ways to share and to help people have positive experiences of learning an instrument. How many instruments do you play? I play the piano, I play saxophone, I play clarinet. When I say play, I mean to varying degrees, to varying levels. 
but especially the piano and in the saxophone are the instruments that I play the most, picking up the flute bit by bit as well. Clarinet, why is it set aside so compared to the saxophone and <laughs> now you've got the flute? I mean, I say that because I'm someone who's actually rather naughty in that, you know, I played the clarinet up until I was 14 and then I really actually regret this. But it's starting to mess with my art lessons at school. So being taken out of one lesson to do another lesson, I actually really feel quite sad about that, that I ended up having to pick one over the other and then just trying to get back into it. So on one hand, we do like the clarinet on this side, but another thing I actually want to segue into off the back of that is schooling and the importance of education and the importance of exposure to music, because you really push for that in ways that aren't actually particularly conventional. So can we explore that a bit? The clarinet part of it is really interesting because I wasn't allowed to give up the clarinet, even though I wanted to at different points, because my parents really said to me that I quit playing the piano which like you, I kind of regret now, even though I picked it up back up later. There's this thing around being young and either things are clashing. And I wrote a book about this. this The first book I wrote was about that whole thing around, you know, kids learning an instrument and then quitting and then regretting it. And the book centered around, well, how can we stop kids from regretting it? Because there's so many different factors, you know, even talking about money, talking about time, you're talking about just falling out of love with it. You're talking about different styles, bad teaching, all that kind of stuff that contributes to kids quitting and quitting doesn't have to be a bad thing but i think the problem is so many people regret not carrying on and so many people don't go back to you know in later life and pick it up you know even for a hobby one of the passions of mine has been just been like hey actually let's in some ways take pressure off learning an instrument because not everyone needs to be a professional musician and selling and touring around the world not everyone needs to do that um, but there's a beauty in in learning an instrument for yourself and playing for yourself and just having you know time in a day or a week or even a month where you can pick something up and just learn and enjoy and just be in your own space and then share that space with others if you want to be in bands and so on but just taking that there's a lot of pressure that a lot of kids and a lot of adults and a lot of musicians you know professional musicians have around becoming better and being better when what they can already do is incredible. And that's not to say, oh, don't worry about becoming better. I think it's important to always learn and to grow, but there's a pressure that comes with that that isn't healthy in, in different ways, you know? So, and then that translates to education where, yes, there's so much to learn, but some of the problems with education is that telling children that they have to learn things in a particular way. And if they don't, they don't go to the next level, like literally, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> if you don't complete Super Mario in a specific way, you don't go to the next level. And I don't think life works like that. Life's not a video game in that way, um, to use that analogy. And so, you know, it's fun. It's about finding different ways to allow people to enjoy an instrument, to allow them to progress, to show them, you know, people who are doing things in unconventional ways and to expose in different ways the failures of top musicians, even though we like to think that they're, they're perfect and they have it all together when actually they're humans just like us. They make mistakes. They have periods of time where they don't like playing or they're falling out of love with the music they're playing, you know, and it's about helping people to, to see the humanity behind you know, what it is to learn an instrument and to love an instrument and to love playing music. You also focus on the fact that music is for everybody, but it also comes from everybody and it comes from different heritage. It comes from different places. And actually, we don't focus on that enough. And bearing that in mind... What are you doing to change things? And as part of the answer, I'd love to hear, when it's tough, how do you keep going? Oh, what am I doing to try and change things? 
And I say try to change things because I don't know how much I can change things by myself. We do talk a lot, like just as humans, we talk a lot about things that we should change. Um, but sometimes what can be lacking is actually doing it and then having the appropriate tools to help us to change, right? Part of what I've been doing is writing books, which I hope, you know, speak to the change that I've been talking about and so many other people before me um, and after me will still be talking about to give adults and to give kids things in their hands that they can learn from straight away. And so whether it's writing books for children, you know, four, five, six years old, or writing books for, you know, teenagers and for adults around um, and and about different people from different places around the world. So wrote a book about West African instruments for young children, wrote one about black female composers, uh, which has been bought by universities and parents wanted to read it to their children and teachers really wanting to read it for their you know, primary and secondary age school children as well. It's about illuminating those stories and the people who have made incredible music that we don't often hear about as well, in the hopes that the people who listen and, and hear about these stories go off and are inspired to become musicians or to delve into different styles of music that maybe speak to their heritage or maybe speak to their culture or they just had no idea about in the first place. And around when things get tough, it's where people like yourself are so important to me because seeing your work ethic, seeing how you promote yourself, and I'm terrible at that. I'm shameless. <laughs> um, <laughs> you are, and that's one thing I've learned, and I probably haven't implemented that in the way I maybe should, but you're amazing at that. And I see so many other people who do that, and no one's going to do it for me if I don't do it myself. So yeah, you've got to push yourself. You've got to keep plugging yourself, even if people get annoyed at you or they want to block you or they're like, stop spamming. But it's like, for you, it's spam. For someone else, it's an opportunity. For someone else, it's it's a discovery. You know what I mean? I was going to say, they don't say that about the big brands, which are regularly advertising or yeah. sharing. But when it's someone who's smaller trying to make a name, there is that element of, oh gosh, this is a bit embarrassing. I feel it. I always feel it. But... If we don't take ownership of our own stories or what we're creating, as you say, who else will? Absolutely. When it gets tough, when thinking about, you know, does this work anymore? Or, you know, are people listening anymore? It's important, you know, to, to find those networks of people. And I'm learning to do that as creatives. I think we can be very isolated, you know, from the world. And we, we see the world through Twitter. We see the world through Facebook. If we're not going out and you know, meeting people and so on. And even when we meet people, when those interactions are quite either transactional or you're trying to figure people out, sometimes you're not making those meaningful connections. And so I think it's really important. I'm learning, you know, to make those meaningful connections, you know, to continue conversations with people and to, and to share the struggles with people, I think is really important because often we, we show the good stuff. You know, we don't show the stuff that actually connects us more failures and the, you know, I'm not sure about this and am I doing this right? Which has been great. Like I said, just coming back to you, just getting to know you and just seeing how tirelessly you work. And it's been like, okay, cool. You're like someone here who we can bounce off each other. We can share each other's pain in different ways. You know, lots of pain. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's so many more people that, you know, it's great to connect with in that way. So, you know, there's a vulnerability about being honest about our circumstances and realizing that, yeah, it might look like we've got it together, knowing that there's an army of people behind us who actually understand what the process is of getting to a certain point and you know different ways will help on one hand maybe people think you've got a glamorous life you're out touring you've hung out with celebrities you know you've got the music but that's all hard work it doesn't just come willy-nilly in terms of oh yeah there's Nate we'll just like get him on straight away 
you really have to build those relationships and it's not always glamorous is it at all no it's not it's not that's not to say it's all bad either right like no. in different ways funnily enough for some people is glamorous but you do it often enough and it's it's just what you do right it's just part of your job and sometimes it's important to kind of st- take that step back and to recognize it for what it is and be and see the the goodness and be grateful that there's some parts of your life that are normal for you but for someone else it's like wow i wish that i wasn't working in this job so i could do more of what she's doing or what they're doing or he's doing part of what i what i want to do in the future is again is 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 more of that is just more being just being grateful and realizing that yeah there's so much that has been really cool about what i've been doing and there's a lot of things that have been really you know they don't people don't see the the sleepless nights and the you know up till 9 10 11 o'clock the you know the 15 hour days they don't see that stuff and sometimes I think it's important to share that. And, and, and there's a vulnerability, I think, in, and there's an expo, when, you, when you're kind of doing things in, in, in the public eye, it's, it's very easy to forget about your own, you know, your own mental health and to forget about the things that are really important, your own physical health, your mental health. Because yeah, putting yourself out there in these ways, it, it can be extremely draining, as you know. And that's something that we all have to be very careful of because I think as we become more well-known in different spaces, there's more demand on you and people are much less understanding around you saying, you know, no, I need some time away or, you know, oh, you haven't posted in a while. What's going on? Like, I need to see your content, you know? Where's the, when's the next book coming out? It's like, yo, this takes a while. I've <laughs> you know? thought about products, you know, as a creative for, for quite a while. And it's like, oh no, this is what it's called. I thought it was just a story or I thought it was just things inkling out of my brain but no these are these are products and as you say it does take time to pull things together but beyond the music what else makes nate nate it's a constantly evolving idea about who i am constantly evolving you know what it means to be a to to have been a boyfriend right it's different to what it is to be a husband you know and then what it is to not have kids to have kids is different you know what it is to you know, I used to live in London. Now I don't. That's different. And, you know, it, there's so many things that are constantly changing and evolving. And in the relationships that I have with different people are changing because they're having kids and they're doing this and they're doing that. Um, and so what makes me me is constantly changing. But I think fundamentally it is about understanding your own principles, my own values, my own principles. And in different ways, those become refined over time as different circumstances happen. You realize actually there are certain constants that don't shape that thing and i think the more experiences you have the more you understand who you are because you you stay in one particular bubble and you're not exposed to this so you don't your your character in a sense isn't tested against that isn't tested against this me being me i'm always going to be a person who enjoys quiet i'm always going to be a person who you know enjoys sharing at the same time always going to be a person who loves learning and always going to be a person who just you know, in different ways wants to see and wants to help other people get to places that they want to get to. But those ideas and how that happens is constantly changing and evolving. And so you ask me this again in five years time and it's going to be different. As the kids get older, it's going to be different. You know, my role as a dad and my role as you're not just a musician and and, and a writer, you're an example now, you know, in a way that I wasn't before. God kids, yes, but, you know, with your own, it's like, it's a different level of responsibility. And so, the way I see myself is going to change totally over the next few years again. Um, and then I'm a freelancer now. You know, if I do end up having a full-time job, that's going to shift because the ideas of what it is to work and 
when you work and how you work and how much time you can spend and, and just thinking financially and all this, can, it changes. It's constantly evolving. Yeah, ask me again in a few years' time. <laughs> we'll see where we're at. But that element of fatherhood, as you say, it does change who you are or where, perhaps how you behave. With you, it would be fascinating to, again, to explore that element in terms of, was it a quiet shift or pretty big in terms of being like, okay, this is dadhood? I'm expecting my first child in the next few months, which is, is an absolute miracle that I've seen it happen before, right? But being involved in it is, is a totally different feeling and, and sensation. And my wife has a child and so she is now mine, you know. And that change was way more kind of sudden. And so it's been a roller coaster of just understanding and seeing firsthand that actually they are watching you all the time and they listen to you all the time. And you might say something one week and then two weeks later, they're repeating it. And you're like, that came from me or certain behaviors that you might display. It's like, actually, that came from me, even though I've gotten to know her as she's already been formed over a few years, you know, like she's five years old when I met her. But even now you start to see, actually, I'm rubbing off on her in a major way. Um, and so there's, there is an added responsibility about how I carry myself and how I interact with her friends and, you know, all of that stuff that she's seeing. And, and as a girl and as being a dad, that relationship, you know, of eventually, you know, as she gets older and she forms relationships and knowing how she should be treated and how she shouldn't be treated. And she's seeing how I work and that's going to affect how she works in the future. If she decides to be freelance as well, you know, or not, or if she decides to have a job, but she also works on the side and, you know, just to see maybe if she sees my work ethic, that might have an effect on how she works and, you know, all the things that I might do with my books and someone, she's seeing them. And she was already talking about, I want to write a book like you. I want to have my book on the shelf like yours. That influence, again, is, is, is so much stronger than I realised. Congratulations. And yes, of course, I find children very confusing. Amazing, but very confusing and very unpredictable. <laughs> they do what they want to do. Yeah. But it, it's interesting in terms of that book thing, because we're book buddies, as it were. And again, I don't think my book would have come to fruition had it not been for my niece and nephew literally saying, have you tried this publisher? Have you tried this publisher? Not quite appropriate publishers for my book, but it is that belief. And when you've got someone believing in you, it does make a difference, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think that the amazing thing about children is they don't, they, they have no fear in a sense. Like they, you know, the things that we'll second guess, you know, in our minds about a third guess and fourth and just keep going over and over. It's like, well, have you done this? Why not? Obviously, you know, this is the this is what you have to do. You know, if you're going to want to, if you're going to do this, you have to do this, right? I think especially working, you know, in education and children, there's like another level of thinking that comes into it because there's so many things you can't assume. There's so many things that you're realizing, actually, this might be the first time they're hearing about something. And so there's a massive responsibility that you have to ensure that it's right, whatever right means. It's fun, inter it's interesting, and also recognizing who you are and that affects how they receive the information too. So I think there's a lot of responsibility, but bless them. <laughs> if you say you're going to do something, they will hold you to account and... You know, there's a full belief in, you know, anything that you do is going to be great. And so that's on you then to be like, all right, cool. You believe in how am I going to make this happen? Involving them in the process is also great as well. I agree. Although when they really are like, oh, whatever, that like, you're such a loser. You're like, oh, great. I feel really old now, but thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just a loser. No, it's, it's pure comedy <laughs> with kids around. But 
I'd love to find out more in terms of, you know, there's so many different aspects to who you are, to who we all are. We're all quite complex characters. Mate, you know, you are a black man. And sometimes I think that adds a lot of stereotyping, a lot of extra burden, not because of you being a black person, but because of the way that society treats people. How do you make sure people realise you are made, that you are not one entity? Because I think that does happen often with people of colour. I think one of the things that's kind of made it easier, I think in some ways for me, is that I'm working in an industry that doesn't have many of us, right? So in education, yes, there's a lot of black men, but in music education, there's really not many at all. In some ways, it makes it easier. In some ways, it makes it more difficult. You know, you, you do feel like a, you know, I, not necessarily eyes on you, but you feel more exposed in that sense. But at the same time, because there isn't, and there, there aren't that many, I guess, black men to kind of measure you against, quote unquote. Um, it does mean that I, I think in different ways, people can, there's maybe less labels attached once they get to actually speak to me because they realize, all right, it's not like I'm setting you against a sample size of 150 or 200 people. It's, it's like you and two other people that, <laughs> two other black men that I'm aware of in this space. So, you know, obviously you're all different. So, you know, what are you saying? I think in some ways that helps. Again, there's, there's so many, there's so much to kind of consider. There's a study by um, Rosabeth Cantor. She wrote this in 1977. She talks about like the effects of skewed groups in a particular setting. She's writing about women in the workplace and what happens when there are like 10% of women, 30% versus 70% versus 90% of women in the workplace and how people interact with them and how they interact with people, depending on the group size. Really interesting study. This is one of the things I kind of constantly think about is sometimes when these stereotypes are out there and I'm aware of some of them, I walk into a space and how much of those stereotypes am I actually projecting onto other people before they even say something, before they interact with me? You know, me assuming you're going to look at me and think X, Y, and Z when actually maybe they're not, right? How much, much of those stereotypes are people walking into a room saying, I'm not going to look at this person like this, but he might think I look at him like this. So how am I going to mitigate that? And so sometimes maybe there's instances where we're trying to dodge something that's even actually not even there, which affects how we interact with each other. So I think it's really complicated, really complicated ideas, especially kind of going back to that study where there's less of you in a particular group. There isn't much, much people can measure against, you know, kind of to use that phrase that's really clunky, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. And then there's less support in that way. Because you do realize that actually, you know, I'm standing here and I don't see anyone who looks like me, even though the experiences that I might have as being Nate might be very, very similar to 80% of the people in the room. <laughs> but I don't know that unless we have a conversation and they don't know that unless they have a conversation. And I might assume that you think that I'm very different to you, but I might not be. Right? So a lot of it boils down to that open dialogue and just being able to talk. What gives you hope? <laughs> sometimes not a lot. <laughs> to be honest, sometimes not a lot at all. We have reports coming out around, we're recording this, well, two days ago, there was a report came out about institutional sexism, racism, homophobia in the, in the Metropolitan Police mm -hmm. in the UK, just mm -hmm. for anyone who's listening outside of, outside of the UK. That doesn't give you very much hope because this is stuff that Black and Asian people, women, people of LGBTQIA plus community have been talking about for years. Yeah, We've been saying this for years. There's institutional racism. We've been saying it for years of sexism. For years there's homophobia within the police. 
and now all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, well we found there is. And so it's just like, <laughs> well, like we've been saying this for like decades. So that doesn't give me hope. In some ways, I, it seems to me that change only comes when, and I use these terms, the oppressor and the oppressed, change only really comes when the oppressor realizes what they are doing, right? Even though the oppressed might be shouting about it for, in some cases, centuries, let's be, let's be honest, right? Um, and only when they want to change, then that's when the change happens. And so that doesn't really give me a lot of hope. But at the same time, there's a lot of really good, I think, interesting systemic things that are at least being talked about, which gives me a bit of hope. That the most hope I get is from either working with young people or creating resources for young people. Because in some ways, I feel like, you know, as adults, we're already set in our ways. We're already lost in so many ways, right? But it's the children that are going to be the future. Um, it's the children that are going to shape, you know, the next 100 years of Earth's history. And so I think I put my hope in them. I put my hope in, you know, the materials that I make and the materials that other people make and just say, like, actually, it's all about the young ones. It's all about the kids who are in university who are, like, struggling with, you know, difficult concepts and allowing them to express themselves. It's about the secondary school kids who are 15 and being forced to decide in different ways, like, the trajectory of their lives at 15. Like, what do you know at 15? You know what I mean? It's about the kids in, in early years who are discovering who they are and looking at the kids around them and being like, oh, my skin's different from yours and asking the questions, well, why? You know, that's where the hope comes from because hopefully if we are able to create the right environments for all of these kids, they're going to grow up in a world that's way more accepting than the world that we grew up in. And they're going to grow up in a world that is seeking to help everyone be their best self, no matter who they are and where, where they come from. The amazing Nate Holder, who brings together a love of music, writing children's books, and so much more. Do you have an interdisciplinary life? Because I would love to hear from you. And perhaps we can chat on this podcast that goes with my newsletter, which is called Have You Thought About? It can be found via www.drutyshah.com. And thank you to Rian Shah for the music for this podcast. And that actually concludes our first season of Have You Thought About? I hope you've enjoyed coming along on this journey. If you've missed any of the other episodes, go back and listen and subscribe and share and rate and review. Feedback, very, very welcome. See you next time.